We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Nehemiah. It's actually two different books. Uh, originally, though, it was one scroll. It was one book, the book Ezra and Nehemiah. And then later in our English Bibles became two books. So if you want to find out where that's at, it's in the Old Testament, which means it's going to be on the left side of your Bibles. And Ezra picks up right after Second Chronicles. And you're like, that's not helpful. I don't know where Second Chronicles is. I know. Uh, but it's about right there, okay? <laughs> and Ezra and Nehemiah are back to back. What I would love to do is just read uh, one excerpt from the book of Ezra to get us started, pray, and then we'll dive in. Does that sound good? Yeah, you with me? All right, cool. Here we go. So, in Ezra, if we can uh, get that on the screen here, we're going to look at Ezra chapter 3, all right? So, I'm going to pick up from verse 10 there, and then I'll give you some context of what we're actually reading. But in Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 10, it says this, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests, dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. For he is good, his faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites, and family heads who had seen the first temple wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted joyfully. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. This is God's word. Father, we ask that as we try to understand a context and a culture and a story that we are very unfamiliar with, Lord, that you still would use that to speak to us this morning, that your spirit would fill this room and fill our hearts, that we would grow closer to you, Jesus, that we would give you, Father, more glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I got a knock on my bedroom door years ago, and I opened it up. My roommate was standing there, and he was saying, you don't understand, I had a fist full of her hair in my hand when it happened. So some context, right? That's what happens when you jump into a story midway through. Uh, Context is, in the very short span of my adult life where I was not married, 18 years old and 18 years old only, my brothers and I went in together and we bought a house. And we knew the only way we could make this work is if we had another roommate to help us pay the mortgage down. And so we brought in a fourth roommate, and this was... At the time, a guy who worked with both Bethany and my oldest brother at an after-school program. I had never met him before, but my brother assured me, you're going to love this guy. He's into hip-hop also. He's a rapper. Uh, You guys, you're going to get along. It's great. And sure enough, we did get along. We turned my little closet into a recording booth. We made music together. We went on to perform together, to record an album together. Uh, We started working together, speaking at schools. We've toured all over the country, speaking to over a million people sitting in a car for 16 hours at a time together. I ended up being one of his best men, or his best man, one of his groomsmen, in his wedding. And we're, we're fantastic friends now. Uh, he's a pastor at a church in Chandler, and so I called him up to make sure I had permission to share this story. Because when I was 18 years old, 
which was 19 years ago now. Oh, my goodness. I just did the math on that real quick, and I'm very depressed right now. So uh, over half my life ago, <laughs> when we were roommates, he was a much different person. And I, I didn't know him that well at this time. And so he came up to my door, woke me up in the morning, knocking on my door. I opened the bedroom door, and I was like, what's going on, Preston? And he's like, man, last night when, when you went, when, when you were gone, I think I was hanging out with Bethany or something. When, when you were gone, uh, your brother had a party in the house. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It's adding up. And he goes, yeah, and so I stuck around. I hung out, and it was fun. We were all having a lot of fun. It was great. Um, we were drinking a little bit, right? And I was like, okay, yeah, that also makes sense. Uh-huh. And he's like, we were drinking for, for a while. And then we started playing this game, this, like, drinking board game. Uh, and then I don't know what happened, man. It's like the next thing I knew, your brother was escorting me back up to my room and telling me I needed to settle down. I was like, oh, dude, what happened? Like, what'd you do? And he's like, well, I guess what happened was I just, I really wanted this girl who was sitting there to know Jesus. I was like, well, that's awesome. I don't think my brother has a problem with that. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, I was pulling her hair to get her attention and screaming at her that you need Jesus. He's like, I was gone, man. I was, I was way too drunk. And we talked about this more recently, and what he would say now is, you know, I had the zeal and passion for God, but I didn't have the wisdom of God. I had the zeal and passion for this woman to know God, but I didn't have the heart of love that God our Father has for her. And I asked him if I could share this story because, oddly enough, reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, it reminded me so much of that story. Many of you have heard the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, of the idea of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, right? God's people coming back out of exile in Babylon. They're finally able to go back to their home, and they can rebuild the temple where they worship their God, Yahweh. But usually, I'm willing to bet we're far less familiar with how the story ends. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 25, this is what we're told Nehemiah does. He's going out, he's looking around, he sees people aren't caring for the temple the way they're supposed to, people aren't obeying the laws of the Torah, of God's word at the time, and people were intermingling with the nations they were supposed to be separate from, at least as far as his understanding went. And so, out of anger, Nehemiah 13, verse 25 says this. Nehemiah is saying this, he wrote this, he says, I rebuke them cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Zeal for God's way, right? But lacking the wisdom and the love of the Father. He beats them. He pulls their hair out, and he forces them to take an oath to follow God. This, this is Father's Day. Quick parent question for all of you. How effective is that going to be as a tactic for raising your children up in the ways of the Lord? Just, I'm going to give you a quick tip here. This one's for free. Don't do it. It's not effective, all right? <laughs> the, the second they can rebel, they will, and you are not showing them the love and compassion of our God. This is why I bring this up. We're going to spend actually two weeks going through these two books together. Uh, instead of splitting them up, because they are telling one cohesive story. And we're going to 
dialogue through it. We're going to process some of it. We're going to look at the timeline. We're going to look at the context, the history. And next week, we'll spend more time looking at how God actually did some of these things. Like, what did God do to rebuild the temple there? How he moved through his people, how he moved through other nations, and how he used everyday trades. The work of people's hands to accomplish his purposes and his will. But before we do that next week, we have to start with a realistic understanding of what these two books are trying to tell us. It is not trying to give us a picture of what it looks like to, uh, in our zeal and in our passion and in our strength, be good enough for God to return and show up. It's not meant to be uh, an object lesson, a, a preaching tool for pastors to introduce a building campaign where we're going to start raising money to build our own church, right? What it's showing us is actually how God's people failed again and again and again and what they were in desperate need of. It's kind of like the Phoenix Suns. We were just having a conversation about this on Friday. And I remember in the 90s, uh, you guys are like, what are you talking about right now? The suns are hot. They're doing amazing. I know. Listen, I'm trying to curb my enthusiasm because in the 90s when you had like Barkley and KJ and this like amazing team and they're going against the Bulls and the finals and like, and then you just let down, right? And that was like the last time I really watched basketball intently because after that, it was just like, what happened to the suns? But then in the early 2000s, you had like players like Steve Nash and it was exciting to watch again. You're like, oh, here we go. And then like, no, that team just kind of falls apart too. And that's the story of Israel, right? And you see this zeal and this passion, you're like, oh, they're playing well. And then something happens. So we're going to see that throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. Here's the timeline. Here's the context. So I gave you context to my pulling hair story. Here's context to Ezra, Nehemiah, the people of Israel. If you remember the last two weeks, we were looking at some other prophets who were telling God's people, hey, because you have been worshiping Babylon's gods, God's actually allowing Babylon to come in and take you into captivity. And the way that Babylon did this, the way that their king at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, did this, is very intelligently, they went and they said, we're going to take kind of the cream of the crop. The most influential people of this nation of Israel, we're going to take them, we're going to exile them, deport them from their land and bring them into ours. And some of them will even live at the palace there with King Nebuchadnezzar. But they're going to learn the ways of Babylon. They're going to be trained up in that. And then they will influence the rest of their people to be Babylonians too. We're just going to assimilate them into our culture. It's a really smart tactic of taking over and, and ruling an empire. Instead of having to battle against them, like you, just, you make them want to be you, right? But... If we were to continue reading in that timeline, what we find is in the book of Daniel, after these people are exiled and they're taken there, and if you've been with us for a while, a couple years ago, we went through the book of Daniel in depth, which is why we are skipping over in summary now. Uh, but as we see in that story, as they're there in captivity in Babylon, that at one point, the Medes and Persians come in, and they take over the Babylonians. They defeat the Babylonian king at the time, Belshazzar, they destroy him. His arrogance led to his demise. And so King Cyrus takes rule. Right? And then you get this King Darius after him, and King Artaxerxes. And so during that time, what you see in that story of Daniel is that Daniel starts finding favor with these kings. Uh, if you remember the story of Daniel at all with the lion's den, remember that these guys were like trying to 
duped the king into thinking that Daniel was a bad guy, so we got to throw him in the lion's den, when actually Daniel had been pretty faithful and a loyal friend to the king, right, while still being faithful, most importantly, to Yahweh, to his God. And so the, the king didn't want to do it. He loved Daniel. And God ends up rescuing Daniel out of that, and then the king makes a decree to protect Daniel and do away with his enemies. So possibly for that reason, that God gave favor with Daniel there with that king, we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that that same king also showed favor to Jerusalem. He actually allowed some of the Israelites to return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild their home there. God gave some favor. We're actually told in these two books that God stirred the king's heart. Three different times, three different kings, he stirred those king's hearts to send them back. And so here's our, our timeline. What happens here is they're taken into exile. But then we have one moment here where I, I promised him I wasn't going to do circles. No Venn diagrams today, okay? One moment here where you get this guy. I don't even know if I'm going to spell his name right. Zerubbabel. So it's, it's a book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but actually it's, it's kind of three movements and three key leaders who are sent back to help rebuild their home. And so this guy is Zerubbabel, which means planted in Babylon. That's what his name means. Like he, he grew up in Babylon. That's what Jeremiah told him. We saw this last week. Jeremiah told him, exiles, when you're taken to Babylon, actually make it a home. Plant gardens there. See that it flourishes. And be fruitful and multiply. Build family. And so he was very much planted in that society. No doubt his parents named him after what the prophet Jeremiah commanded them to do. But he goes to the king and he says, hey, listen, there's, there's a problem back in our home. And the temple has been destroyed years and years ago, and our people cannot worship. Now, the Persian Medes had a much different tactic for ruling over other nations than the Babylonians did. Their tactic was actually, hey, you can worship the way you want to worship, and you can live the way you want to live as long as you pay taxes to us. Very similar to how Rome rules in the New Testament, the Bible story. So that's fine. You can, you can go back, rebuild your temple. In fact, even because God's favor, even you can take some men with you, Zerubbabel, and you can go and you can use some of our resources to help rebuild your temple. So Zerubbabel returns to rebuild the temple here. And he faces opposition. And it's not just Zerubbabel. There's another man, Jeshua, who's helping him out, which, by the way, he shares that name with Jesus. Uh, Jeshua, or Yeshua is how the Jewish people would have pronounced it. And then there's another guy whose name I can't even, I'm not even going to try to pronounce. And so these three in unison, they're, they're kind of leading together, and they're rebuilding the temple. And what happens is a group of Israelites who were never exiled come over, and they're like, hey, we would love to help out with this. We haven't been able to go and worship and sacrifice at the temple either for years. This is our history too. We have the same God. Can we help you rebuild this temple? And they, they stand up against them. These leaders, Zerubbabel in particular, says, you have no part in this. We were told by the king to come back and rebuild this temple. We are coming and doing this mission, and you have no part in this. So what do they do is they, they literally are creating a division within their own people. Does that sound like the heart of God? 
or even the wisdom of God. But there's a zeal that they have that we will see this temple rebuilt and we will be the ones to do it and God will be happy with us. And because of that division, because of that distinction, they made, no, 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 you who stayed here, no, 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 we, they're looking down on them because they weren't exiled with them. We're going to be the ones to rebuild. Because of that, they actually turned them into their enemies. And so these other fellow Israelites start plotting against them, and they do everything they can to actually slow down the process of rebuilding the temple. And then they send a letter to the king, and they say, hey, you don't want to let them rebuild this temple. They'll stop paying taxes to you. And there's this whole problem, but eventually God prevails, and he provides a way, and the temple's rebuilt. Then the second wave comes, and you get here Ezra. Ezra returns to Jerusalem, and he says to the king at that time, hey, listen, the temple's rebuilt, but the people, they don't really know how to follow God anymore. They don't know how to follow our God. They don't know the the laws. They don't know the customs. They don't know the Torah, which is what they had of the Bible at the time. And so let me and some others go back and teach them the ways of God again. Let us rebuild not just the temple, but rebuild the customs of our people and the religion of our people. And the king goes, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And again, we're told God stirs his heart to allow this to happen. And so they go back and they start uh, rebuilding the identity of Israel around the Torah, around God's word. But again, the zeal kicks in, right? The zeal without the wisdom and the heart of God kicks in. And what do they do? Ezra starts telling them, hey, while you were in Babylon as exiles, you married foreign women. You took on foreign wives, Babylonian women, and now you have kids with them, and they're not all worshiping the same God. They're worshiping Babylonian gods. So what you have to do is you got to divorce these women and send them and their children away from you so that we can be pure, a pure people of Israel once again. Some of them do it. No surprise, some of them have a really hard time with that, right? With the zeal of we need to be following after the Lord, being right, but without the wisdom and the heart of God. The compassion of God that we see in books like Ruth, right? Where Ruth, who was a foreign woman herself, actually comes across as the hero of the story. And she marries into the family of Israel. And we find much later that Jesus himself comes from her lineage. Or stories like last week where we heard Jeremiah himself said, this is what God says. When you go into Babylon, give your wives over to marriage and find wives there for your sons and build families. Be fruitful and multiply. That God's heart and compassion was always that Israel would be an example to the other nations and invite them in to God's family, not to send them away. And so the, the zeal of, hey, let's, let's help teach these people how to follow after God is right. But lacking the wisdom in the heart of God, instead, what do they do? They send the ones away who they are afraid will not do it the right way. So first wave, you had this division between themselves, their own people. Second wave, they're now dividing themselves from the other nations who God told them to love and care for. And not just the other nations, but the nations mixed in among them. Their neighbors, their family members. Third wave comes, and you get Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, can I go back? Can I help rebuild our people? Because now they have a temple, now they're following the the Torah, but 
It's not a real city. What do real cities need? They need to be fortified. They need to have walls. They need to have boundaries. They need to know that they have city gates to protect them. And so let me go back and rebuild a wall around Jerusalem, right? And so the king goes, okay, go for it. Again, God stirs in his heart, allows it. He goes back. And again, they face opposition. But this time, it's opposition from the surrounding nations who are right around the borders of Jerusalem who are used to just this open land, right? Used to just mingling with the people there. And suddenly, there's these walls cutting them off. So there's division and opposition there. And yet, somehow they prevail. And this is where often we hear these stories of these zealous, passionate leaders who just overcome obstacles and they rebuild. But that zeal, that passion, again, lacking the heart, lacking the wisdom, God himself. We get a picture at the end of our story of the Bible that one day when God renews and restores all things, in this city where God dwells with his people, that there would actually be no shut gates, no walls, because it is open, because God's inviting in all nations. In fact, I have some scriptures I would love to share for us real quick with some of the contemporary prophets of that day. So if Jeremiah was a prophet leading up to the exile, Zechariah and Ezekiel were two prophets who were living around the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. And these are some of the things that God told them to say to others. Push what down? Oh, you can't. Is that better? <laughs> so in Zechariah 2, starting in verse 10, Daughter Zion, this is God's people, shout for joy and be glad, for I am coming to dwell among you. This is the Lord's declaration. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day and become my people, but they're building walls to shut them out. I will dwell among you, and you will know that the Lord of armies has sent me to you. The Lord will take possession of Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and he will once again choose Jerusalem. Many nations will come. This was always God's plan, right? We can go to the next one. I'm going to jump ahead here. Jeremiah 31, he said this, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. We're going to, again, like I said, next week we're going to talk about uh, just how God uses the work of his people to accomplish his purposes. And I read that, and I'm reminded that, like, oh, my job will be worked out of existence, which is a good thing. Never, never again will there be someone who needs to teach people how to follow God because God's love, his wisdom, his heart, his ways will be imprinted on all of our hearts. So I'll have to roast coffee or something. Right? That's why I'm getting my practice in now. 
but what he's saying in that is this. Listen, I gave a covenant that's the deepest of all kinds of promises. I gave a covenant to your ancestors, to Abraham. I will be your God, you will be my people. God reiterates that in Jeremiah there. He's not changing that promise. What he's saying by giving you a new covenant is this. It used to be, it used to be that I had one representative come up to the mountain and get the law and bring it back down to you on stone tablets. But instead of on stone, I am now going to impress it on each of your hearts. You will know me intimately. I am changing your heart. You can have the zeal and the passion of trying to do all the right things in your own strength, but if you don't have a changed heart, the heart of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord within you, you'll continue to fail Israel over and over again. So Jeremiah, I'm sorry, the next one, uh, Ezekiel, I believe. Thank you. In Ezekiel, he he reiterates this. Ezekiel 36 For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. You hear that? It's the same promise, but it's done through a new heart that God gives me, a new spirit in you. What is needed here is not just to go and rebuild the temple, not just to go and reinstitute the ways of God through the Torah, not just to put up a wall so that we know this is a defined city. Isn't it interesting that thousands of years later, many Christians are still expecting the same thing to happen? Right? Like, and I'm not making a political statement here right now on what's going on in Israel. I don't know who's right, who's wrong. It's, it's a hot mess. That's what I know. But isn't it interesting that a lot of believers are still looking at, well, we have to be on the side of Israel no matter what they do, even if they're in the wrong. Because once we see that, that city rebuilt, once we see them become a nation again, then God will be with his people. It's the same exact thing we're finding even before Jesus shows up. That's what they're expecting here in Ezra and Nehemiah. We rebuild the temple. Wait a second. There's something wrong. Why are the people, we, the thing we started reading in Ezra 3, why are the people who saw the first temple crying and weeping? I encourage you to read both these books throughout the week because what you find in that story is this, that the presence of God used to dwell in that first temple. His presence is not found in this new one. You can rebuild the temple, but if God's presence isn't there, it doesn't matter. You can can make Israel a socio-political nation, but if God's presence isn't there in their hearts, it doesn't matter. You can, as a church, have all the programs running, but if God's presence isn't here with us, we are empty That's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. So no wonder, after this story takes place, you get to the end of Nehemiah, chapters 8 through 13, and it starts, there's two last movements there. One is a good one where they start with, okay, we we have the temple, the Torah, the walls rebuilt, let's worship. And they go through all these feasts, they have a festival, and they read from the word of God. And man, I wish it ended there. But then you see the aftermath. You see, oh, the sons aren't still the sons from the 90s, right? 
And hey, it's a great season this year. Let's ride that wave. I don't know what next year is going to be, though. You say, like, oh, no, we're returning back through this cycle. Because that last movement is Nehemiah running around and going, like, what happened? In the temple, the thing that Zerubbabel went to rebuild, they have wicked priests serving there. And people aren't tending to it and caring for it. With the Torah, they're not observing the Sabbath. They're not following God's ways. They're not trusting in him. And then finally, he goes to the, to the gates, goes to the walls, and he sees they're just like scaling the walls anyway and setting up markets and selling to the nations there and buying from them. And it's like the walls don't even exist. And that's when he goes nuts. This strong, passionate leader for God goes around beating people and yanking the hair out of their skulls and demanding that they take an oath to follow God, lacking the heart and the wisdom of that very God. Now here's the good news. Because we hear that and we go, oh man, this cycle just keeps repeating and repeating and repeating. So Israel didn't get it together then. They're not getting it together now. We aren't getting it together as followers of Jesus now. But in that story, we have a leader who out of zeal and passion for the Lord became violent and lost the heart and love of God. But in Jesus, we have a story of one who's zealous and passionate for his father's ways and then gives himself over to violence out of the love and compassionate heart of God. And instead of going around beating people up, he hands himself over to be beaten, to be whipped spat upon. He gives himself over to that violence so that he could overcome it. He says this temple will be torn down, but my temple, it will be rebuilt. And sure enough, three days later, on the third day, he rises from that tomb after being beaten and killed. That the temple of God, the heart of God, the wisdom of God, the zeal of God, all resides fully within Jesus, and he rises from the grave. But this is a growing temple. This is a temple he continues to build through his people. We are called living stones in the Bible because he continues to build his temple, not just by brick and mortar in Jerusalem, but through every one of us who follow Jesus. He gives his spirit to us. That new covenant we're promised in the prophets of old. I will give you a new spirit, give you a new heart. I will impress upon you my ways. You will carry the love, the heart, the wisdom, the zeal, the passion of Yahweh with you, church. The spirit of God has been given to those of us who have trusted in Jesus. So we don't have to go through this cycle again of trying to rebuild things on the outside and go, maybe God will show up now. He doesn't show up in that temple. He has chosen to show up here in this temple, his people, by his grace. That is good news. We don't have that moment that we read about where people are weeping loudly because it's empty. God's presence isn't there. But instead, we can rejoice that God has chosen to fill his temple, his people, with his presence. So may we go out not just with zeal and passion and do terrible things like pulling people's hair, but may we go out with the wisdom and compassion of God, the same zealous desire that people would know him, but doing it out of giving ourselves over 
way Jesus gave himself. Laying our own lives down, our own rights down, sacrificing our needs, our wants and desires, so that the deepest desires, that all things would be made right, that we would be reconciled to God, that his presence would dwell with us eternally, so that others would know that. Amen?